Amen. Amen. Well, as Matt said at the beginning of our service, what we've been doing during the course of the Advent season is we're just asking and answering questions. And, and if you've been with us, you know that these are not questions that we came up with. In other words, we didn't sit around as, you know, like a pastoral leadership team and say, okay, what questions do we assume that people are asking? But instead, we came to you guys and said, all right, what, what questions are you asking? And, and not just what questions are you asking, but what are your friends asking? You know, what are the people you work with asking? What are people who don't share your faith asking? And we got hundreds of questions that were sort of narrowing down to 21, and we're answering them from the perspective of the Bible, which is why four weeks ago we actually started with a question about the Bible. We said, you know, why should we even listen to the Bible? Because if we're going to answer your questions from the Bible, probably we ought to answer that first. So week one, why should we listen to the Bible? Week two, we talked about Christianity and science, and are they really in conflict? Are they? Week three, last week, I thought Matt did a fantastic job of dealing with a difficult question that was a whole category of questions, which is, why is Christianity so exclusive? Incidentally, every religion is exclusive. The nature of truth is exclusive. I mean, just think about it mathematically. One plus one equals what? It equals two, and it doesn't equal anything else. And so the fact that it equals two precludes anything else. But I love the way that Matt approached it because he came and he said, listen, there are truth claims of Christianity for sure, but Christianity doesn't persuade you with a bunch of propositions of truth. It persuades you with a person. It comes and it offers you Jesus. And the invitation is to examine him. The invitation is to get to know him. So that was last week, but today, as, as we pick up our study again today, we're going to be talking about this question of, is it even possible for me, for you, for us to know what it is that God wants us to do? And I recognize on the front end that that assumes that God exists, which I, I do assume that, and it assumes that the God who exists can actually speak, and I assume that too. And here's the argument that I want to make, and I hope that it doesn't offend anybody, really. I, what I want to say, and this is a humongous statement, is that on some level... For many of us, a subconscious level, we actually all make those assumptions. That's crazy, right? Because maybe I don't even know you. Maybe you got dragged here today. You know, you wouldn't even be here, but for the fact it's Christmas and it's your family and you're like, Tom, we've never even talked and you're telling me what I presuppose about God. And I don't presuppose those things about God. And I, I, I get that. I can feel that. I'm, believe me, sensitive to that. But I want you to think it through with me like this. Here's what everybody agrees on. Everybody agrees that there's such a thing as right and there's such a thing as wrong, even people who would tell you that they don't. And the reality of that is proved out in my life and in yours every single day. It's like, oh, I don't believe in right and wrong until somebody wrongs me and now I'm upset about it. You see how that works? I don't believe in wrong until somebody goes and spreads rumors about me. I don't believe in wrong until somebody goes and tells true things about me, but that are really humiliating. I don't believe in wrong until someone steals my car and then I call the police. I don't believe in wrong until somebody does me wrong in business and five seconds later I'm on the phone with my lawyer. Why? Because I do believe in wrong. And it's also why when somebody tells me that I've done something wrong, I get all defensive about it. You know, here's what I never say. No, 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 that can't possibly be the case because there's no such thing as wrong. No, 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 I'm like, well, maybe I did do this, but I only did this because you did that. Or, you know, you don't know what kind of day I've had. And that's why I was so irritable and I'm making all kinds of excuses. And Or maybe I just say, yeah, you know what, you're right. And I apologize. Why would I apologize if it doesn't exist? No, 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 we all believe in right and wrong. And we prove it out by the way that we live. The order of life requires it. And when you survey humanity throughout all of the ages, 
Here's what you discover. There are some discrepancies regarding what's right and wrong, but largely we all agree on what's right and on what's wrong. So let me ask you a question. Where would that come from? I mean, right and wrong, where would it come from? And then this agreement on what's right and wrong, where, where in the world would that come from if there isn't a God who really does exist and who's imprinted a moral code on each one of our hearts? He's told us deep down in here what is right, and he's told us deep down in here what is wrong. And I want to use selfishness as an example. And I call that out because nobody thinks selfishness is good. Nobody would go, oh, yeah, 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 no, that's right. Listen, if this world in which we live, and if you and I together and everybody else who has ever lived are really nothing more than the accidental creation of some evolutionary process, okay, why do we all agree deep down in a gut level, core of our being kind of way? That selfishness is wrong even when we see it in ourselves. Because if you think about it, in a universe in which there is no God and there's no afterlife, and this life really is actually all we have, and our lives really are people, I mean, we're, we're people who just need to look out for ourselves ultimately, like I'm in a relationship with you, but only as long as you're meeting my needs. Because it's all about me. I'm all I have and all you have is you. All right, in that kind of a universe, the golden rule is not do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but the golden rule is, you know, look out for number one and don't step in number two. That's it. Isn't it? It is survival of the fittest. And the cardinal virtue of survival of the fittest is, in fact, selfishness. Selfishness is a necessity. It is a heralded thing if that is, in fact, reality for us. But we all know better. And I can do the same illustration, the same analysis with pride. I can do the same analysis with lust. I can ask questions that, like, instinctively we recoil from even the asking of. I can say, well, why is it wrong to kill people? And we're all like, whoa, whoa, whoa I can't even believe you went there. Why would you even suggest that that's not a, you know, something that might not be wrong? Like, why would we even have that conversation? Why would we? Because instinctively we understand that it's wrong. But if it's survival of the fittest, if there's no God, if there's no right, if there's no wrong, it's open for conversation. So when it comes to this question of whether or not it's possible to know that what it is that God wants us to do, I absolutely do presuppose the existence of God. And I presuppose the existence of a God who speaks because I believe he has spoken already and he has deeply imprinted quite a few things on my heart and on yours and on everyone else's. But I think the real question is when somebody comes, we had a whole category of questions. How do I know what God's will is for my life? So it's phrased variously. But I think the real question when somebody comes and goes, all right, can I even know what God wants me to do is not, you know, do I know whether or not God would have me be selfish in this particular instance or prideful in this particular instance or lustful in this particular instance? We know the answers to those things. What we're really asking is, hey, Tom, you know what? I have two job possibilities here. I have this one and this one. And how do I know which one God would have me take? I have narrowed my college search down to two colleges. So this one or this one, which one should I go to? 
I have the ability to merge my business with this business or to merge my business with this business, and I'm trying to figure out which one the Lord would have me do. I've got my housing options down to two, okay? So it's going to be this one or it's going to be this one. Which one should I choose? And is it even possible for the Lord to to communicate that to me? And I think it absolutely is. And every time somebody comes to me with one of those kinds of questions, I say, all right, ask five questions in regard to what you want to know. So question number one, what does God's word say? Now, why is that significant? Because God speaks through his spirit primarily through his word. And sometimes he speaks directly to the issue. Like you go to the concordance, you know, and you look it up. I mean, it's just plain as day. But most of the time in these kinds of circumstances, God is speaking indirectly to the issue. And so should I take this job or should I take this job? Well, you're not going to turn in the Bible to, you know, Romans 8 or something. And and God's going to go, you should go to work for this company. But as you study the Word of God, as you come to see the plans and purposes of God, not just His plans and purposes, but His plans and purposes that He wants to affect through you, and you realize that He has made you to help Him advance His kingdom in this world, in this little bit of time that He has given to you in which to do it. And you begin to analyze your job options in regard to God's mission for you. Well, maybe in that you find an answer. You say, should I go to this college or this college? I don't know. Is one of them Florida State University? Because then it gets easy, right? (laughs) Very simple. But assuming it's two other schools, should I go to this college or should I go to this college? Well, you're not going to find that in the book of Hebrews. But here's what you will find. That God wants you to grow in his relationship with you. He wants to cultivate faith in you. He wants to create opportunity for you to learn how to walk with Him. And you start looking at these options and you go, which one is going to help me do that? And maybe in that you find an answer. Should I merge with this business or this business? I don't know. But I do know that God calls you to radical truthfulness. And if one is more ethical than the other, something to think about. Should I buy this house or this house? Well, if the price is very different... And if the difference in the price is going to affect what the Lord says about being generous toward God and others, in that you might find the answer. Like you're not going to go to 2 Corinthians 9 and have God go buy this house and not this house, but he'll tell you there about your possessions. He'll speak to you there about people in need. And you hear the voice of the Lord and you go, wow, you know, that's relevant to this conversation I'm having about what house. And you realize that what the Lord is doing, perhaps, is he's saying, hey, this is the right one for you. And so when you're trying to figure out what the Lord would have you do, the first question to ask is, what does God's word say? And if you have the answer, then you're done. You don't advance. But if you don't have the answer, then you go to question number two. And what is that? It's what does my heart say? It's a fascinating thought. What's my desire? Like, which one do I really want? And why is that even a relevant question? Because David comes to us and he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? It means that he will implant them in you and then in the end he'll give you what you ask for because he and you are both now desiring the same thing. But how does that work? It only works if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, if you're walking together in relationship with him, if you're pursuing him, if he is in fact your God. And you're looking to walk together with him in life, personally worshiping him and so forth. 
then what happens is that that your heart grows more like his heart and your mind grows more like his mind and your character lines up ever more and more so with his character. And before long, without you even realizing it's the case, you are desiring for you the very things that he's desiring for you. It's crazy. And you look at your life, many of you who have learned how to walk with Jesus, let's say in the last five years, and you look five years ago and you go, my goodness, I had a completely different set of desires. Like I would have never desired, just as an example, to come to church pretty much every week. Now I can't wait. What's changed? Your heart. The Lord has changed your heart. And it's wonderful from his perspective because as he implants his desires in you and they become your desires and you realize they're a reliable guide to what it is that he wants you to do and you ask him to fulfill those desires, he then gets to give you what you know he wants you to have and what you now want. It's amazing. It's like buying a bicycle for your son during Christmas. You know, you go out and you, you research, you know, what's the best bike. You're going to go all in on the bike. This is the biggie, okay? You go to different stores and you talk with all the guys who know everything about bikes and you figure out, like, this is the perfect bike for your son, you know? And you find it and you stick it in your closet and you throw a blanket over it and you ban him from your room until at least the day of Christmas. And, and then you go to Target with your son like a week before Christmas and you make the mistake of walking past the bike section and he falls in love with some bike that's a lesser bike but has awesome stickers. And... And now what are you going to do? He loves that bike. But you have, in your greater wisdom, the right bike. Okay, so the wise and patient parent begins to talk to his son about what makes for a really, a truly excellent bike. Here's, here's what makes it light, and here are the special metals, and here are the special wheels, and this is, you know, shock absorbers, I don't know, reflectors, like whatever it is that makes this particular bike that you've already purchased and you're already waiting to give him because it's already in your closet and you know that it's right. All of the features of that bike. So that over the course of the week, what happens? Hopefully what happens is he starts to desire the bike that you and your greater wisdom know is best for him and have already purchased. You've given him your mind. You've given him your heart. And then when Christmas comes, he's not disappointed. He would be disappointed if he didn't get the bike you already bought. When you delight yourself in the Lord, your heart changes. It becomes more like his heart. And then you can begin to look at decisions and go, you know, what, is, what, what, what do I really want to do? Like, what do I want to do? What is my passion in this moment? with regard to this decision. So, what does God's Word say? If you have the answer, you're done. But if not, what does my heart say? And if that answers it, you're done. But if not, the third question to ask is, what does wise counsel say? Because the third way that God speaks to us today is through wise counsel. Listen to what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus, had to say about wise counsel. He said, let the wise do what? Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. Very simple idea. You're like, yes, I need to go get some good advice. I need wise counsel. Who do I ask? What does a wise counselor look like? I think a wise counselor, first of all, is somebody who has an established relationship with Jesus. What are you looking for? You're looking for the voice of the Lord to come out of this person. And so it needs to be a person whom you look at and go, my goodness, this person is familiar with the voice of the Lord. Like they have an established relationship with Christ that I admire. I will value that. 
I think a wise counselor, secondly, is, is somebody who's going to tell you what you really need to hear, even if maybe it's not what you want to hear. So it's going to sting a little, or maybe it's going to sting a lot. But they're willing to speak the truth to you how? In love. Love drives truth. It tempers the way that we say it, but it requires that we speak it. And then I think thirdly, wise counselors are people who have been where you want to go. So you, you need to make a financial decision, for example. Okay, so I am looking for somebody whose spiritual life I admire. They are walking with the Lord. I am looking for somebody who I know is going to give it to me straight. Just, just hit me between the eyes with this. Go, right? And I'm looking for somebody who actually has a track record of success in the particular area of life that I want advice in. So this person's made great decisions in that area or maybe in the marriage area or maybe in the parenting area or some other area of life. Wise counselors are hugely valuable people. And again and again, I've seen how the Lord uses them in my own life and, and how he would use them in yours. So, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, what does his word say? Okay, I still don't know. All right. What does your heart say? Well, I'm a little ambivalent. All right. Okay. What does wise counsel say? I don't know. I'm still confused. Well, then and only then you reach question number four, which is what do my circumstances say? Now, why is that? Because the Lord governs over all of our circumstances. He sovereignly controls absolutely every detail of our lives, which is confusing and at times painful. Because at times, you know, you want, he wants you to do this, or so it seems, right? But then everything else in life is, seems to be trending in this direction. It's like, Lord, I, I thought this, but now I see all of these circumstances that say this, or you promised me this, but everything I'm seeing is suggesting that's not going to happen. Why does he do those kinds of things in our lives? Because it happens pretty regularly, and not just in our lives, but in the Bible. We see it again and again and again and again. It's a pattern of I make you a promise, and then I give you all of these circumstances that make it look like there's no possible way for me to fulfill this promise. He does that so that he can then fulfill the promise, receive the glory, and cause us to have to exercise faith in the balance, in the in-between time, where it's like, I don't know how you're going to do this. <laughs> I can name a thousand ways that you're not going to be able to do this, but, I, but I'm going to trust you nevertheless, day by day, day by day, day by day. So the Lord controls our circumstances, and sometimes it's in the details of life that we discover what his will is. So, for example, Paul, when he left the church at Ephesus, said this in Acts 18, verse 21. He said, I will return to you if God wills. What does that mean? I will return to you if God orchestrates my life in such a way as to allow me to do so. And he did orchestrate Paul's life in such a way as to allow him to do so. But there are other instances in Paul's life where he says effectively the same thing, and then it didn't work out. And therefore, then, it was not the Lord's will. So, God, what do you want me to do? Well, what does God's word say? What does my heart say? What does wise counsel say? What do my circumstances seem to be saying? And then if you still don't have the answer, question number five, when all else fails, ask, what does my own common sense say? You know, when you open the Bible to the beginning, you read that we were made in the image of God. What does that mean? We were made in such a way as to communicate to us and to each other things about God. So why do we have eyes, for example? Because it seems like the answer to that is because they're really helpful. You know, I can see. I can see with my eyes, but it's not the answer. We have eyes that see. 
so that we might know that we have a God who sees. We have ears that hear because we're made in the image of God. They're telling us that we have a God who hears. We have mouths that speak because we have a God who speaks. And he's communicating that to us every time we express his image by speech. We have hearts that feel and feel deeply because we have a God who is capable of infinitely deep feelings. And we have minds that are rational, at least most of the time. They work. We can use them. They analyze things. They, we can think through problems can anticipate issues and work in such a way as to mitigate them. Like there's, We have these minds because they are an expression of the brilliance of the one who has made us in his image. And when all else fails, he requires us to use them. My own two cents, my own common sense. So when it comes to the question of whether or not it's even possible to know, okay, what God wants me to do, I, I do presuppose the existence of a God who speaks. And I presuppose that in part, and there are several other arguments, because there's right and wrong, and, and I think we all agree on that, at least on some level. But I also believe in a God who became a man like me, and yet unlike me, in the person of Jesus Christ on Christmas. A God who entered into this world and, unlike me, lived a life that was only right. Think about that. Right in thought, right in word, right in deed, right in imagination, right in intention, right in motivation. Just the right amount of everything. Not too much, not too little. Right in inaction. He only did right so that he could then lay down his infinitely valuable as God-made man life for my life, in which there's a lot of wrong. And to what end? Because this God who has made us in his image wants to have a relationship with us. And so at the cost of the life of Christ, he removed every barrier between us and him, covering over all the wrong in my life, past, present, and future, and yours, if you receive that free gift from him. And if you want to know what his word says about that, it says, come get it. Bring to him your life, such as it is, and hand it over to him, asking him to forgive you and asking him to take over. And in that, you will find joy and meaning and purpose. And then after that, when you need to know what he wants you to do, let's just run through the grid. What does God's word say? What does my heart say? What does wise counsel say? All right, what are my circumstances saying? Still confused? Use the mind he's given you. Grow in your relationship with him and in your sensitivity to his Holy Spirit as he works through these various means. And you will come to know the voice of the Savior. What does Jesus say? My sheep know my voice. He speaks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you exist and that you speak. Lord, we thank you for the reality of who you are and the reality of your great love for us as we see it displayed in the gift of your son who entered into this world in Christmas, who lived the holy right life and who in love for me laid down his holy right life as a sacrifice and a substitute because 
My life has many wrongs. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the reality of the offer of your salvation and the reality of the voice of the Lord, who is the greatest communicator ever. Bring us to the level of humility necessary, God, for us to come forward and and give ourselves to you such as we are. Make us new and speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.